98K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Robert Kemp. Tonight's headlines. Concerns are raised about mainland officers operating here and suspects being put on trial outside Hong Kong. As Carrie Lam tries to reassure Hong Kong people and foreign investors over national security laws, and survivors are reported in a crash of a Pakistani airline in Karachi. Mainland security agents will operate here in Hong Kong under a proposal to introduce national security laws to the SAR. According to a proposal, that's expected to be put to a vote at the ongoing National People's Congress meeting in Beijing next week. Relevant mainland organs responsible for safeguarding national security will set up agencies here according to need. Details of the proposal are not available yet and questions are now being raised as to where suspects will be put on trial. Some pro-establishment figures say they will be tried in local courts. But Eric Cheung, a legal academic with the University of Hong Kong, says that may not be the case. My worry is that uh, the actual law eventually published by the MPCSC may provide for the uh, uh, trial of this national security offences not necessarily in Hong Kong court, so it may empower the uh, Ming official to bring the suspect back to mainland for a trial or even to set up a special trial court within, say, the site of the Liberation Army. And then, to, but uh, uh, really, that is a fundamental blow to the one country's system. Chief Executive, meanwhile, played down concerns about Hong Kong's role as an international financial centre. Carrie Lam's comments came after local stocks took a battering today and the American Chamber of Commerce warned that the introduction of national security laws could jeopardise business prospects. We need not be um, over worried because the stock market goes up and comes down. What is important is the robustness of Hong Kong's uh, regulatory uh, system. You have quoted the public response by one of the uh, chambers, but I have also read press statements issued by some of the Hong Kong local chambers who felt very much like what I have said, that especially having gone through one year, almost one year of disruptions, violence and uncertainties, anything particularly in safeguarding national security that will help stabilise the environment is indeed very good for local investment sentiment. And Maria Tam, a Deputy Director of the Basic Law Committee, dismissed concerns that the legislation would infringe on Hong Kong people's rights and freedoms. No, <laughs> it isn't. The law, if enacted, just will be sort of executed or implemented in Hong Kong and trials will be taking place in Hong Kong. That's my guess. So um, as far as I'm concerned, unless you are interested in somehow upsetting the national security of Hong Kong and China, you have nothing to fear. You just carry on with your normal life and do your normal work. To other news, the Examinations and Assessment Authority has decided to scrap a controversial question in the DSE history paper, which asked students to respond to Japan's role in China in the first half of the last century. The assessment for that question will now be based on students' answers to several other exam questions. Education sector lawmaker Ipkin Yoon says that could be unfair. If one student who performed very well in all other questions, but he or she does not have time, or he or she make a serious mistake when doing this particular question, he will still get full marks, even he or she has not written one word for this question. This can be very unfair for other students. Every candidate, they might feel very unfair when they get a result which is lower than expectation. 
The saga raised concerns about academic freedom and the way history is taught in schools. A Pakistani passenger plane carrying nearly 100 people has crashed into a residential area in the city of Karachi. Officials have so far confirmed the deaths of dozens of people, but at least two have survived. The Airbus A320 came down about a minute from the airport. The BBC Saher Baloch is in Islamabad. The ambulances are finding it very difficult to reach where the plane crashed. A few houses and a few cars were also burnt in flames as well. The aviation spokesperson has said they are trying to investigate the cause of the incident and why it happened. An audio clip has been aired on local television in which a pilot of the plane can be here speaking to the call tower, making a mayday call and asking them that one of the engines of the plane stopped working. And it was after a minute that the plane basically crashed. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Health authorities have announced two new imported cases of coronavirus in Hong Kong. The patients are a 15-year-old boy who returned from Britain and a 61-year-old woman coming back from the Netherlands. The woman told officials she developed a fever and a cough in the middle of April while in the Netherlands, but she'd since got better. Dr. Twan Shukwan of the Centre for Health Protection said the woman tested negative when she arrived last Thursday, but sought medical help this week because her cough had persisted. I understand more than one specimen have been tested and you've shown that it's weekly positive and then on repeated testing is tested positive by our laboratory, the Department of Health laboratory and we consider that her symptoms may be as true as the end of her infection. That's why um, when she arrived in Hong Kong, uh, it was tested negative. The two new cases take the number of infections here to 1,065. The local stock market has suffered its largest single-day percentage drop since 2015 after Beijing's announcement to impose national security laws here, stoking fears of renewed protests, tensions with Washington and capital leaving Hong Kong. Details from Altis Wong. The Hang Seng Index lost as many as 1,400 points during trading to hit the lowest mark of the day at the 22,800 level. At close, the index was down 1,349 points, or 5.5%, at 22,930, the lowest close since late March. The percentage fall is the largest since July 2015. It's also the biggest point drop since February last year. Market turnover was more than $180 billion. Property shares were worst hit. Sinoland and Langridge each plummeted more than 10%. New World Development, Wolf Real Estate Investment, Swai Pacific and Sunhunkai Properties each fell between 7 and 9%. Not a single share on the 50-member index escaped from today's route. The best performer, Tektronix Industries, still dropped more than 2%. China hasn't set a target for its GDP growth this year, saying it's difficult to predict due to the coronavirus pandemic and the world economy. Premier Li Keqiang made the announcement as he opened the MPC plenary session in Beijing. Speaking through an interpreter, he said GDP reached almost 100 trillion yuan last year, representing a 6.1% year-on-year increase. I would like to point out that we have not set a specific target for economic growth this year. This is because our country will face some factors that are difficult to predict. It's a development due to the great uncertainty regarding the COVID-19 pandemic and world economic and trade environment. Yu Su, a China specialist at the Economist Intelligence Unit, says there's a lot of uncertainty facing the Chinese economy, which explains why no GDP growth target was set. So if the global pandemic lasts longer than 
people expect it will drag significantly down of China's exports, which will take a toll on China's economic growth rate. Also, a, a potential second wave in the winter is also part of the government concern because if there is another wave in the winter, it will hurt economic activity and that drag down the economic growth, which can potentially lead China under this target if it sets one. Growth in China's military spending is slowing. Defense spending will go up by 6.6% this year. That's down from 7.5% last year and continues a downward trend. Total spending is set to reach about 1.2 trillion yuan or 178 billion US dollars. That's the second largest in the world behind the United States, which stands at 738 billion US dollars. Son of the murdered journalist, Jamal Khashoggi has said he forgives the people who killed his father. The announcement is likely to mean that the five people on death row in Saudi Arabia are granted clemency. But his fiancée has said no one has the right to pardon the killers or the people that ordered the killing. And several campaigners have suggested Mr Khashoggi's son has been placed under pressure to make the statement. BBC Charlotte Gallagher reports. Jamal Khashoggi was a fierce critic of the Saudi government. In October 2018, he was murdered and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in the Turkish city of Istanbul. The journalist had gone to the building to get a document about his divorce. In the following months, the Saudi authorities gave different accounts of what happened before announcing he'd been killed in a rogue operation which hadn't been state-sanctioned. That's been disputed by international intelligence agencies with the UN saying there's credible evidence that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and other Saudi officials were responsible. But after a trial shrouded in secrecy, five men who've never been identified were sentenced to death. The latest intervention by a son of Jamal Khashoggi means those men are now unlikely to ever be executed. Salah Khashoggi wrote on Twitter that he and his brothers had forgiven their father's killers during the month of Ramadan. The Saudi media outlet Arab News says the announcement may spare the men from the death penalty but doesn't reverse the conviction or mean they won't be punished. It's been widely reported that the children of the murdered journalist received multi-million dollar homes from the Saudi government, as well as monthly payments. That's been denied by Salah Hashoji, who maintains he has full confidence in the justice system. United Nations war crimes prosecutor has confirmed the death of a major suspect in the 1994 Rwandan genocide. Statement said DNA tests had proved that remains found in a grave in the Republic of Congo were those of Augustine Bismana, Rwanda's former defence minister. BBC's Anna Holligan reports from The Hague. As the Minister of Defence, Augusta Bizimana was charged with 13 counts of genocide, complicity in genocide, extermination, murder, rape, torture and other inhumane acts, all linked to the mass killings of Tutsis and moderate Hutus. About 800,000 people died during the Rwandan genocide. Bizimana was alleged to be responsible for the murders of Tutsi civilians, targeted on the basis of their ethnic origin, and also a former Prime Minister and 10 Belgian UN peacekeepers. To Australia, where disagreements have emerged over whether to reopen internal borders between states which were close to stop the spread of the coronavirus. BBC's Phil Mercer reports. Australia is the world's sixth largest country. Its six states and two mainland territories have adopted different approaches to stop the spread of COVID-19. Many internal borders were closed. 
But with health authorities declaring the coronavirus outbreak to be mostly contained in Australia, there are calls for those borders to be reopened. The federal government says it would help to revive an ailing economy. But Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania and the Northern Territory are refusing to reopen their borders on health grounds. Sport talks over a potential return to action in the English Premier League have been dominated by some players' absence from training due to fears over the coronavirus. Several players at Watford decided not to return to training after defender Adrian Mariapa became one of the three one of three people at the club to test positive for COVID-19. The captain, Troy Deeney, who had earlier voiced his concerns of assist safety, is also absent. The former Watford striker, Marvin Sordell, says players should be allowed to refuse to train with their teams if they don't feel safe. We're in a very tense situation at the moment and everybody should be able to have their own thoughts and opinions on, on the situation that's going on at their workplace. And I think a football club is no different to that. And I think he should, he and other players should be able to have the choice on whether or not they go back. The International Olympic Committee president... President Thomas Bach says he understands why the rescheduled Tokyo 2020 Games would have to be cancelled if they cannot take place next summer. His comments come after Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe admitted it may be difficult to stage the Games if the country does not successfully contain the coronavirus. He made it very clear from the beginning that the summer 21 is the last option. You cannot forever employ 3,000 or 5,000 people in an organizing committee. You cannot uh, every year change the entire sports schedule. You cannot uh, have uh, so much overlapping with the future Olympic uh, Games. So I have some understanding for this approach uh, by uh, our Japanese uh, partners. Mind of our top stories tonight, concerns are raised about mainland officers operating here and suspects being put on trial outside Hong Kong. As Carrie Lam tries to reassure Hong Kong people and foreign investors over national security laws. And survivors are reported in the crash of a Pakistani airline in Karachi. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to good stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. The top Beijing figure, Maria Tam, who's a deputy director of the Basic Law Committee, has dismissed concerns national security laws would infringe on Hong Kong's basic rights and freedoms. She believes local courts will serve as gatekeepers and the law will have limited impact on people's everyday lives. And Priscilla Ong asked Ms Tam whether people should worry about the presence of mainland security officers here. There's no detail. We only have this draft uh, resolution which has to be voted on on the 28th. If it does get passed, and I trust it will, the standing committee will look into the issue you raised just now. Now, by by passing LESHCO, some critics say that this spells the end of one country, two systems. Uh, What's your take on this? Oh, no. Uh, One country, definitely, if you cannot protect one country, you're not going to have two systems. The integrity of both one country and two systems need to be safeguarded. And the resolution today uh, is to ensure that the first part is done so the second part could be secured. 
Mm. Secondly, the uh, Article 23 of the Basic Law is written in Chapter 2, which is Central and Local Relationship. So it is within the sphere of the central government's authority and is not an article uh, within the sphere of um, high degree of autonomy. Now, now, Beijing says that this law is needed because of the social unrest last year. But some critics, like um, law academics, say there are already you know, laws in place to counter those behavior, like rioting or criminal damage. So this law is really simply aimed at clamping down on people's rights and freedoms. Uh, what's your take on this? No, <laughs> it isn't. Uh, the law, if enacted, I trust will be um, sort of executed or implemented in Hong Kong and trials will be uh, taking place in Hong Kong. Uh, that's my guess. So um, as far as I'm concerned, unless you are interested in somehow upsetting the national security of Hong Kong and China, you have nothing to fear. You just carry on with your whole life and do your normal work. So because some people are concerned about, you know, what secession really means, what sedition means, uh, you know, there's some, some sort of ambiguity there and they are worried. Oh, there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of question now because you have only a decision uh, to be made or the uh, authorization for the uh, standing committee mm. uh, to work out the law. Mm. So nobody can answer the questions that you now because we are nowhere near to getting down to detail. Now, just uh, one last question. The civil society has reacted quite strongly to this so far. Are you expecting more social unrest in the short run? Oh, we are going to have unrest anyway. <laughs> I'm very sorry to say that it's not because of this particular decision. Uh, maybe a lot of people are very happy that at last there's light at the end of the tunnel, that we can stamp down on some of the things, the uh, violence in the street and other criminal acts uh, that's been taking place. Uh, I think different people have different views about this particular issue at this moment. Legal scholar Eric Cheung says Beijing's decision to impose national security laws on Hong Kong is alarming and a de facto declaration that one country, two systems has failed. And Cheung, a principal lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law, says the possible stationing of mainland security personnel in Hong Kong to execute the national security laws is worrying because this could provide for suspects to be put on trial outside the SAR. He spoke to Anne-Marie Evans. It's very alarming and it's most sudden to see Beijing's decision and to be, I think, it amounts to a de facto declaration that the one country to a system fails and Beijing now is to directly govern Hong Kong. So you're saying it's an end of the one country, two systems? Effectively, because uh, it breaks down the five war between Hong Kong and mainland. Because what MPC uh, seeks to do is to introduce the national security law directly to Hong Kong. And we all know that the design of the basic law is that under Article 23, the SAR should legislate on its own. And the rationale for the design at that time was that because of the fundamental difference between the two systems. So we can't to bring in the national security law concepts directly to Hong Kong because it will infringe the human rights protection in Hong Kong. So that's why 
still uh, adopt the mainland's civil uh, law. But now, what now seeks to do is for the MPCSC to directly legislate for Hong Kong that is not allowed under basic law. The mainland security officers, if they are here in Hong Kong, would that supersede the work of local law enforcement authorities? And do you worry about arbitrary arrests, trumped-up charges? Yes, it is definitely worry because uh, you can see from the draft that in paragraph 4 provides that if necessary, uh, they can have the um, national security agency stationed in Hong Kong and to uh, execute law in Hong Kong. So basically, that means it breaks down the firewall between Hong Kong and Mingman. So we allow Mingman officials to not just station in Hong Kong, but actually to execute the national security law in Hong Kong. And of course, we still need to wait and see about the details. But my worry is that uh, the actual law eventually published by the MPCSC may provide for the uh, uh, trial of these national security offences not necessarily in Hong Kong court. So it may empower the uh, main official to bring the suspect back to mainland for a trial or even to set up a special trial court within, say, the site of the Liberation Army. And then, to, but uh, uh, really, that is a fundamental blow to the one country's two system. So you're saying that uh, basically, it, even if they're um, suspected of a crime, uh, that comes under this possible new anti-sedition law that they could then still be whisked across the border? Yes, because it seems that uh, that is a natural uh, 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 result of the decision because here, this um, national security law are not promulgated uh, locally but directly by MPCSC. Of course, they will publish a law in their own way, in the Chinese way, not in the common law way. And so they have a good argument to say that the Hong Kong court is not in a good position to interpret and to execute the law. And so, and, and also they can say that because it's, it's not about national security, so Hong Kong court is not the uh, best forum to deal with it. So uh, the worry in particular, it only says that uh, it would allow this uh, 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 national security agency in mainland to stay in Hong Kong and to execute the law. Beijing has not set a target for economic growth this year, saying it's difficult to predict a figure because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the state of global markets. Premier Li Keqiang made the announcement as he opened the NPC plenary session in the capital. Li also says the central government will give local authorities 2 trillion yuan to help them undo the damage from the coronavirus-mandated shutdowns. Trillion yuan's worth of government bonds will also be issued with the money aimed at protecting jobs and meeting basic living needs. Yu Su, a China specialist at the Economist Intelligence Unit, spoke to Jim Gould about the mainland economy. Not setting economic growth target this year reflects central government concern over the uncertainty, especially related to the global outlook. So if the global pandemic lasts longer than people expect, it will drag significantly down of China's exports, which will take a toll on China's economic growth rate. Also, a potential second wave in the winter is also part of the government concern because if there is another wave in the winter, it will hurt economic activity and that drag down the economic growth. 
which can potentially lead China under this target if it sets one. Uh, we heard that the central government will be giving financial support to local governments to the tune of uh, 2 trillion yuan, but what else do you expect in terms of stimulus for the economy? So what we expect the central government will do is to focus specifically on supporting employment and poverty reduction, which is at the very top of their priority this year. So we're expecting in the coming months more policy measures related to supporting let supporting enterprise to keep their employment and to support labor income. And also, um, as a result, um, boosting consumption is, is going to come in. Yeah, because domestic consumption remains weak. I mean, is there much that can be done about that? Yes. So I think so far what the local government trying to do is to distribute the so-called consumption coupon to to encourage people to spend more. And also um, policies related to uh, cut the vehicle purchase tax is also um, coming in some of the provinces and cities. So um, I think what the central government need to do is, first of all, to make sure that people feel comfortable to spend more, which they need to um, give more support uh, to the enterprise to make sure that they, that they can keep their employment uh, so that um, the, employee, the employee's income prospect uh, would not uh, worsen fast so that they are willing to spend more. And the other thing, uh, I think what they can do is to uh, coming up with more um, policy measures related to uh, car sales, um, which is a huge uh, percentage um, of the total retail sales. Also, innovatively uh, relaxing the property market is also, uh, it could be another option. One of the biggest stars of 1980s pop music has found himself at the centre of an unlikely row over the result of a radio competition in Singapore. Listeners reacted furiously when a local man was denied thousands of pounds in prize money for mispronouncing the name of the former lead singer of Spandau Ballet, Tony Hadley. Rather than accepting the radio station's decision, Mohammed Shalahan took matters into his own hands. The BBC's Colin Patterson has a story. Never has there been so much interest in how to say the name of Spandau Ballet's lead singer, Tony Hadley. Tony Hadley. Mohammed Shalihan works on Singapore's Underground Railway and has a number of loans to pay off. So he decided to try to win a long-running Name the Celebrity Voice competition worth 10,000 Singaporean dollars, that's around £5,700, on his local radio station. Goals 905. For weeks, people have been trying to name the 14 celebrities, each saying one word of the station's slogan. Oh, nine, oh, Mohammed listened for hours each day, writing down other people's guesses, and after a month was pretty sure he'd worked it all out. He called up, to his amazement was put on air, and read out his 14 answers. You got 13 correct names, 13 of them in the correct place. Extreme disappointment. But then, two weeks later, he was baffled to hear another contestant give exactly the same names and win. He contacted the station and was told his answer... Tony Hadley. ...was a mispronunciation of Tony Hadley. 
Infuriated, he emailed a recording of his on-air appearance to the singer's manager and received this video message back. This is Tony Hadley here from the UK. As far as I'm concerned, you pronounce my name absolutely correctly. Tony Hadley, you might have said Hadley, it's like accent, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, you said my name correctly. Tony Hadley. Gold905 insists that Mohammed's answer did not meet the criteria needed, but have now offered him what is believed to be around $5,000 as a goodwill gesture. He, however, has still to decide whether to accept it, saying there are bigger issues at stake. Well, some good news for Mr. Shalahan. Gold905 have reached out to him and say they're deeply sorry and have decided to award him the full $10,000 cash prize. Since Tony Hadley has said that Mr. Shalahan said his name correctly, who are we to disagree? The station said on its Facebook page, it said the full prize and a shopping spree would be paid out. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK early this evening. Robert Kemp from our newsroom. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion. To fight this pandemic, take preventive measures when commuting. Avoid rush hours and busy times and take advantage of flexible working hours. Wear a mask when taking a ride. If possible, open the windows to ventilate the vehicle. Clean your hands with liquid soap and water or alcohol-based hand rub after using public transport or touching public facilities. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Tips for you and me to prevent COVID-19. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to Well, you heard the voice, moments to remember. That is nostalgia with Ray Codero all the way until 1 a.m. Johnny Pearson at the piano.
the beautiful theme from Love Story, played by Johnny Pearson, his piano, and his orchestra. You heard it right here on Radio 3. Let's welcome Jim Reeves. I love 